I discovered that I wasn't really a designer. I learned that in the best possible way, which is I was working with some of what were at the time the world's best designers. And I was able to sort of stand back and look at them and go, oh, well, that's, that's what it looks like if you're really good at this. Well, that's not me. I guess I should figure out what I'm good at. Um, and it turned out what I really enjoyed was actually just running the business. Like running the business was the most interesting part of it to me, thinking strategically about like, what is this business? How do we grow it? How do we make it more successful? How do we understand what it actually is? You know, maybe this is also the Act Lab's fault. I always start off by thinking I'm interested in the thing and itself, and then it turns out I'm much more interested in like, I don't know, the backstage shenanigans that go on to make the thing possible. Wikimedia LLC President Lane Becker joins the Plutopia podcast this time. We discuss Lane's early career and his involvement in UT's Act Lab program, his work in product design, AI, VR, and AR, the Institute for the Future, and all things Wiki. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Plutopia News Network. Our guest today is Lane Becker. Lane is currently president of Wikimedia LLC, and we all know that Wikimedia is part of its, there's a Wikimedia Foundation, there's Wikipedia, which is, um, uh, I guess you would say, published by or, or managed by the Wikimedia Foundation. But what is Wikimedia LLC? <laughs> Um, uh, it's a, hi everybody. Uh, I mean, Wikimedia LLC is a, it's a, it's a for-profit, um, subsidiary, basically a wholly, I should say a wholly owned, uh, for-profit entity that's owned by the Wikimedia Foundation. So it exists to do some for-profity type stuff, even though ultimately all the money goes back to the nonprofit. Well, that is intriguing. I think before we talk about that some more, I'd like to talk a little bit about your history, which is a very interesting history. And we've occasionally uh, aligned and crossed paths along the way. Uh, we know a lot of people in common, uh, but this goes all the way back to uh, your education when you were at the University of Texas and you were at ACT Lab, which was uh, the Interactive Media Lab which was uh, operated by Sandy Stone, who was a professor at UT. And uh, I was part of Back Lab, which was like friends of Act Lab. Uh, I was an old fart, long graduated, but hovered around Act Lab quite a bit. And that's when we met. Oh, man, we do go, we do go back. I know. We go back <laughs> I mean... a ways, yeah. <laughs> we go back. Oh, I was just a kid. So what did you think of your experience at ACT Lab? I mean, the ACT Lab was, oh, I miss the ACT Lab. It's so funny. I still run into people now, some of whom I went to school with at the time, but some of whom were at the ACT Lab uh, uh, like before me or more often after me because I was pretty early on. And it's just, it's still such like such a point of connection. Like it's such a bond. It was such a bonding moment because it was such a, I don't know, a crucible for so many folks in terms of just like forming their perspectives on the world. And it certainly did that for me, you know, I mean, so much of my life and career kind of came out of this very, very brief period of time I spent at the ACT Lab at UT. I mean, it makes me, makes me, still makes me sad that it doesn't exist anymore. You know, UT Austin's now got like this huge sprawling new media campus and an entire building 
dedicated to new media arts that didn't exist at the time when we were just in a tiny room trying to trying to like figure out what was going on with these fun new technologies on the internet. And, but nobody um, really knew what new media was or was going to be at the time. It was sort of in the process of creation, right? Yeah, I think we were still calling it multimedia at the time. South by Southwest was calling it multimedia at the time. Um, you know, we're still doing a bunch of stuff with CD-ROMs. So, you know, it was a ways back. But it was like, oh, yeah. We actually covered a, the uh, oh, sorry, last yeah. iteration of Act Lab, which was held at the... Uh, at a local theater and uh, had Sandy Stone here. And Sandy's been a, a regular contributor to our podcast, but uh, it was an interesting concept. It just sadly went away. Uh, that went away, was the last time it was held, uh, you know, I think mainly because of COVID. Yeah, I know. And I missed that one because I was out of town. I was so sad. And I thought at the time, oh, I'll get to it next year. And here, here we are three years later. Yeah, we talked about doing another one. It could happen. Uh, this was, uh, it was sort of an ACT Lab connected, I guess you could say mini conference. Well, it was a conference. We pulled a bunch of people together and did the kind of things that you did at ACT Lab. You know, there was kind of a maker element to it. Um, there was a rowdiness to it. Um, and there was a sense of experimentation right. there and just kind of hanging out and seeing what we could create. And that's kind of the way I always saw Act Lab. It's like before Make Magazine, before Maker Fair, before any of that stuff, people were making at Act Lab. Yeah, I definitely feel like I got the confidence in my career to just sort of charge into situations and to not be afraid of new technologies and what they represented. And also to think about them critically, right? So always, I mean, that was one thing, you know, I went, I went to, I mean, spent some time talk about my career, but I spent some time and, you know, web 2.0 and prior to web 2.0 and Silicon Valley and, um, and doing the startup thing. And, you know, one of the challenges for me was that environment's always so rah, 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 technology is going to change the world in positive ways. And that lab honestly left me with a pair of glasses that were not entirely rose tinted, you know, yeah, exactly. It, it yeah. was, I was always questioning that and it probably kept me from becoming wildly rich, but I think it also helped me maintain my ethical center, my moral course. So I feel like on balance, that's an okay trade-off. So originally when you uh, sort of set out to build a career for yourself, I, I, my recollection is that you were a designer, right? Yeah. Way back at the beginning, I was like early on in the user experience design world, even before we were calling it user experience design. So I definitely, I definitely got started on the design side of the house. And um, the, one of the companies I started was a, a user experience design consultancy called uh, Adaptive Path. And um, which I know well, I had a yeah, lot of friends yeah. at Adaptive Path. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, you know, we were, I mean, you, know, you, can make, you can make a strong argument that it, if we didn't necessarily invent the term user experience, we were certainly the ones that popularized it and turned it from a, from a concept into a job title. Well, certainly um, Jesse's book, uh, The Elements of yeah, User yeah. Experience. Yeah. Yeah. I say we, but really at the end of the day, I should probably give most of my credit to my partners in that project. I just sort of forest gumped along behind them, <laughs> but still we did some cool stuff. Well, was that, I mean, later you became an entrepreneur and at times a management consultant and that sort of thing. Is that sort of the transition when you were at Adaptive Path and were like a founder and an owner? 
I think at Adaptive Path, what I discovered at Adaptive Path, well, for, was that, well, first of all, I discovered that I wasn't really a designer. I learned that in the best possible way, which is I was working with some of what were at the time the world's best designers. And I was able to sort of stand back and look at them and go, oh, well, that's, that's what it looks like if you're really good at this. Well, that's not me. I guess I should figure out what I'm good at. Um, and it turned out what I really enjoyed was actually just running the business. Like running the business was the most interesting part of it to me, thinking strategically about like, what is this business? How do we grow it? How do we make it more successful? How do we understand what it actually is? You know, maybe this is also the Act Lab's fault. I always start off by thinking I'm interested in the thing and itself. And then it turns out I'm much more interested in like, I don't know, the backstage shenanigans that go on to make the thing possible. <laughs> Oh, I'm thinking about your um, uh, your uh, Twitter description of yourself: prestidigitation, double shuffling, honey fugling, horn swaggling, and skullduggery. Those are business related things, <laughs> actually, as far as I'm concerned. I found that in a. I've actually found that in a um, an article that was talking about. Um, uh, I think it was an economics writer from the 20s, the 19 1910s, 1920s. And that was someone's description of him. That's what they said that he was good at. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a, that's a great list. Those are <laughs> great skills to myself. have. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, so uh, you also founded a company called the Original Internet Company, correct? Oh, yeah. That was my least exciting. Uh, well, it was fun for me. It was probably my least exciting company. I would describe that as the company where I realized that maybe I didn't want to be running companies anymore. It was um, it was kind of a mid 2010s, early 2010s attempt to kind of chase after LinkedIn, but in a way that was more oriented towards projects and people and like being able to show your work instead of just you yeah. know, res resume up your work. And it was, I was, it was sort of that. I mean, you know, we all have these moments where we realize that the moment has passed us. I think and that that company was it for me. I was like, oh. The way that I think about running companies and the things that I want companies to be about, like creation and invention and bringing something personally meaningful and relevant to people in the world, all that stuff that, you know, I've thought that the internet was for ever again, ever since the Act Lab, um, you know, sort of slammed into a venture environment that was far more interested in understanding like where the money is going to come from tomorrow. Thank you very much. And I was just, or in this moment, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. Like I can't. I, I know what the thing that I care about would look like to build. And I think my you know, co-founders on that particular project agreed with me. And, and then I could sort of see what the venture environment had become and what it wanted. And it was just pretty clear that there was no Venn diagram overlap between the two. That's actually the point at which I start. I just got out of the startup world entirely and started pursuing technology work in, in environments that I thought were more conducive to like more, you know, more of the human side of human centered, I guess you could say. That was a wise choice because that was around the time when venture capital you know, became the driving force for just about everything. It, it became the only reason to exist and it, was, it kind of sucked the fun out of uh, the things we were doing back in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, money people aren't much fun. Don't, don't. I mean, I guess I was going to say, don't tell them I said that, but here we are on your podcast. So I guess they're going to hear it. Um, I mean, I'm not saying I just, you know, I mean, I, one of the things that always drove me a little crazy about Silicon Valley is I'd go to some of these parties and I, this wasn't universally true. There's some great venture capitalists, just like there's some great folks and everything. But 
I go to some of these VC parties and I'd be like, oh, you have all this money and this is what you think a party looks like? This is terrible. Some of the least least fun I've ever had at a party. So, yeah. you know. I've been to some of those too. I, I know just what you mean. Well, you, uh, uh, at some point, I mean, there was kind of an interesting thing that happened to me that I, it sounds like you kind of got pulled into it too. Um, in, I guess, uh, oh, wow, two thousand five and six, I got involved with political uses of social technology and also became involved with a lot of people who were like trying to figure out how to best adopt and use open source uh, development practices and that sort of thing in, in, in the political world. And I think Code for America was kind of like that. And I see that you spent some time with Code for America. What Tell us about that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I'm talking about technology and and democracy, and that's the that's right the dream. On. Still, yeah, still, still hard to get there, but still, honestly, still the dream. Um, yeah. So I spent some time at Code for America, which is a I was so as I mentioned, I kind of was like I need to transition out of the startup universe, and and I didn't know where to go, and I spent a couple of years sort of roaming, lost in the wilderness, doing consulting work, and trying to find some sort of place that I could end up. And Code for America was a really happy home for a while on that front. It was uh, It's a nonprofit that was trying to figure out, started in the early 2010s. And by the time I got there in the mid-ish 2010s, I think 2014, had sort of started to figure out like, how do we work with governments, right? How do we work with city governments in particular at the time to figure out how to improve the way that they use technology to serve residents? Right. So how can technology be better applied to the problems of government and doing it at the city level means things like how do you make it easier to for, you know, people to apply for a court date? How do you make it easier for people to interact with a DMV? You know, how, how, what, what are the different things that you can do that just make people's lives easier through technology? Because we're interacting with government is the thing people have to do and it can be frustrating or it can be, I don't know if delightful is the right word, but it can be, you know, not non and non-disruptive, I guess. And so how do we how do we do that with technology? And Code for America was early on in trying to figure that out. And I just, I loved it because I loved working with government because, and this is sort of the designery side of me, but like working for government made me realize that the way that you think about product and the way that you think about product design is like massively influenced by the set of goals, the people that you're serving and the set of outcomes that they're driving towards, right? Uh, uh, or, or, or the set of stakeholders and the goals that they're driving towards. And specifically what I mean by that is like, I realized at that point, oh, I've spent the last, you know, however many like decade plus in my career, basically working to serve one of two masters when it came to product development. And that was either subscription revenue or advertising, right? Like those were the two things that drove at, at base, every decision that everybody made and every product that I was working on, like, how are we going to get paid for that? And I didn't really realize that until we started doing product development work inside government where that's not the motivation, right? And it was really fascinating to realize like, oh, this actually in like some, some I mean, it took almost took, uh, it was almost like an unlearning because it took some time to figure out like, oh, the universe of what we can do here is different. The set of outcomes that we're driving towards is different. The way that we think about design and design processes and like design outcomes can actually be different. And like, I'll just give you an interesting example of that. Like when you're, when you're designing something for a city and you're thinking about how do we 
how do we how do we build it right you have to think about every single resident of that city right you have to think about the rich people you have to think about the poor people you have to think about every race you have to think about every ethnicity you have to think about every set of circumstances that people might be in because because nobody's everybody has to do that right everybody has to you know interact with the government in some way shape or form deal with a court date apply for a license get a permit whatever it might be right like at some point everybody in the city has some set of interactions and that's really different from a commercial product where at the end of the day like your design choices they sort of like choose the set of customers that you're going to have you know like you have a subset of the world and that subset of the world the product kind of chooses them based on whatever it is that you're trying to go for um but when you're doing it for a city that's not the case. You have to do it for everybody. And so the way you think about understanding those users, the way that you think about interacting with them, researching them, serving them, it's just completely different because you you have a different set of, you have a different set of inputs, a different set of outputs. Um, I will actually, I know I keep coming back to it, but it's just hard not to. I will actually credit the ACT Lab more than any other place for, again, teaching me to think critically about this and to think about like audience and usage in a broader way. And so it really came together for me when I was started to work for government and I realized, oh, I can still do this stuff that I care about here. I can still attempt to have impact here. It's just a very different kind of impact than I was trying to have in the commercial space. Well, when customer-facing government technologies are developed, there's often not much thought to you oh, know, no. the user experience, really. And just bringing that thinking into government is kind of a big deal, really. Uh, did you find resistance to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I find, well, I find resistance to good design everywhere for all sorts of interesting structural reasons, I think. I, read, I mean. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's people reasons, but mostly it's, yeah, structural reasons, it's cost reasons, it's the way that the environment was designed, it's what people consider a solved problem, it's how they think about their audiences and stakeholders, all this, all this factors into it. Um, but, I, you know, my joke, whenever, whenever uh, designers or product people or engineers or anybody came into government and they'd be like, what do we do here? And I'm like, well, what do you want to work on? Because sort of everything's broken. Like, this place is serious job security for you like government is so far behind where the commercial sector is because it hasn't had the same pressures to force it to compete and to improve and so it's finally only now here you know by then it was the mid 2010s starting starting to think that way i had a a, co a co-worker a really brilliant man you probably know john named mike mcgursky uh, oh, yeah. who's yeah Mike Rigursi started a really was one of the founders of a really amazing early um, information visualization studio called Stamen. Um, he was the CTO at Code for America at the same time that I was working there um, running product and he he used to say and I love this because remember it was 2014 I think when he was saying this he was like our job is just to get most of the services we're using from like 1999 to like maybe 2007 2008 he's like that would be a massive sea change in terms of how it would got used you know I um, was I I worked on a fairly innovative uh, application that was I mean I worked for government for years and was in government technology mm -hmm. and uh I mean, just a quick story. We we had worked with this application for a long time, and this application was driven quite a bit by policy, you know, and 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 the intricacies of policy created complications within the application. And a bunch of guys came in from the outside at some point. I can't remember how they got in there, but they were just going to reinvent everything. And they had these huge smiles on their faces and talked about how 
basically that we being government guys didn't know what we were doing, but they knew what they were doing and they were going to fix everything. And like I say, they had big smiles on their faces and those smiles just kept falling over time as they <laughs> came to realize what they were actually dealing with. They were frowning quite a bit before they, I think they got dismissed <laughs> actually, but that's one of the problems with some government applications. They are driven by policies that are not necessarily created with logic in mind. You know, they're driven more by diverse interests, you know, diverse interests feed into policy and you have some things that just don't kind of work very well together in, in the policies that are developed. And if you try to then turn those into code, it can be very distressingly complicated. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can certainly relate to that story. Yeah. I am, um, uh, there was the, um, well, I have two thoughts on that. One is I actually think there's so much more room for technology to contribute to the conversation around policy, both for technologists to get better and more comfortable with being involved in policy, but also for policymakers to really start to get a fundamental understanding of technology and how it can be used and what it's good for and what it's not good for when it's appropriate and when it's inappropriate, you know? I worked for the, I ended up working for the federal government for a branch of the federal government called 18F, 18F, not ATF, which was one of the uh, sort of the short version is it was like one of the spinoff arms of the um, Obama um, healthcare.gov rescue. There were a couple things that came out of that. The United States Digital Service was one of them. And 18F, which is my department, was more focused on like longer term sustainable technology transformation in government. Still exists, still doing good work. Um, part of an agency called the General <laughs> Services Administration, which is like the back office of the federal government. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I really, I, I enjoy, I really enjoyed that work, but a big part of my work there was just, you know, people would come in with like the same thing you were talking about, John, with like these sort of starry-eyed ideas about how we were going to apply, you know, X, Y, or Z new technology. And my job was just to say, no, like, no, that's not what we need. We need something simpler. We need to walk before we run. We need to crawl before we walk. We're not even crawling yet. And, and uh, you know, that can be frustrating for people because, but, you know, you sit down and I explain to them like, no, we're not going to be able to apply artificial intelligence to solve this problem because here are all the things that you need for a sophisticated machine learning setup. You know, you need a, uh, uh, you need a data source. You need access to that data source. You need it to be normalized. You need all this stuff, right? And I was like, do we have any of those things? We do not. Because the part we're on right now is just trying to get to a place where we could even produce a data set that ultimately could be used for like artificial intelligence to actually draw upon. Like we're just, we're behind, you know, you can't start at the end of the book. I mean, you can, but you know, you're going to miss the whole story. Um, the other thing though about that is, um, is also actually from Code for America, another, I worked with a lot of really wonderful folks at Code for America. That year for me at Code for America actually was not dissimilar to uh, my time at the ACT Lab in terms of its massive impact on my life and career and perspective on the world. Um, but a woman named Sid Harrell, who was the head of user research at the user experience and user research at Code for America at the time and actually now runs the city of San Francisco's entire California digital service for which the city of San Francisco is extremely lucky. Um, and Sid, like Mike, is brilliant. And she used to talk about whenever somebody would come in and say something needed to be innovative, she'd go around here, we're into InnoBasics. InnoBasics. 
do the inno basics of the thing work? She's like, I'll keep half the word for you, but we're going back back to basics here. And it was it was an interesting it was it was an interesting time. You know, they'd expect us to show up as the people that were like those folks you were talking about. They'd expect us to show up as the people with all the flashy new ideas. And we'd be like, mm, we just kind of want to fix the plumbing. You mentioned AI and that's become like the flavor of the month or well of the year with all the great predictions of what AI is going to do for us, the miracles it's going to create for us. And a lot of them have kind of turned out to be more snake oil than uh, than miracles. Uh, do you think there's a real future for AI and things like government? I do, actually. I just think it's going to take us a little while to get there. And honestly, we're probably going to have to get there in the commercial environment first, because to your point, a lot of what people think they can do with AI, we don't really understand how to use it very well yet, I don't think. Um, I... I will say this, and I, um, I'll reference, uh, uh, so these days I work at, as you mentioned, the Wikimedia Foundation at this, at this subsidiary, um, working on a product called Wikimedia Enterprise, which we can talk about later. But um, one, of the other, one of the folks that works at the foundation that I really admire is our, is our head of machine learning, uh, whose name is Chris Albin. And he, he talks a lot about, probably won't be able to say this as succinctly as he does, but he talks a lot about AI as a tool to improve human productivity, right? So a lot of folks who try and get into artificial intelligence, they want to use it to replace people. And he's like, mm, artificial intelligence is not useful as a tool to replace people. Right. It's, it's like fundamentally a nostalgic technology, right? It can only look backwards. It can only learn from things that have happened. It has no ability to predict what will happen. At best, it's going to be going to be give you give you a newer, faster version of the past, not the future, right? He's like, but that can be incredibly useful. I would argue that can be incredibly useful as a tool, right? A tool for understanding where we were, a tool for improving cognition, a tool for uh, helping uh, be generative and creative. I think there's lots of opportunity for tools like that, tools that are designed to do what tools do, which is you know allow us to extend the reach of humanity further and ideally in positive and generative ways. But you know, you get people who come in and they just, they want it to, replace the entire customer service experience and let you talk to a robot instead of a person. And we, you know, we've been living with those sorts of efficiency attempts throughout history and doing it they with artificial intelligence, just the latest. <laughs> yeah. Or like they're painful or they're denuded or they waste people's time or they sort of dis disrespect, uh, disrespect the person using them. It's, it's not, it's, you can do that with technology, but why? Like you can do so many wonderful things with technology. Why would you pick something so crap? Well, that's it. I, I think, the the way to think about AI is uh, as kind of a sub organic support system for humans, and yeah. as a it's um, a good 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 phrase for it. Yeah, and as as a partner, you know, something that we can work with and that can support us in what we're doing, but not something that will replace the human element. I mean, human judgment is hard to replace with AI. I think I haven't seen it work. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that it does. I, no, I don't. That's not that I don't think that it does work. I think sort of period, full stop, it does not work. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't find other ways to make use of these tools. I don't know. I think that when people forget that a machine is ultimately a tool for achieving something for people, and they think that it is instead a thing that is designed to replace people, stuff can get kind of weird. I'm thinking about that scenario that Jake Dunnigan came up with, where the AI had been the mayor of the town. And uh, 
eventually there was a law passed that said that AIs could not serve as mayors or as officials because they just didn't have the judgment for it, but they could, you could keep them, but you had a human there who was supported by the AI system. And I think that says it right there, you know, that that's a, a realistic scenario to me. Yeah. Yeah. Not the, not the mayor, but maybe the chief, the chief of staff. <laughs> you know, another flavor of the month in technology is the metaverse. What is that going to do for us? I mean, you tell me, I, this, this is what, where I go back to the ACT Lab, because I, you know, my introduction to what we now call the metaverse, what 100% came at the ACT Lab during like, you know, er, early attempts at virtual reality in the 90s. And I loved it then and was noncommittal about its use. And, uh, <laughs> but that was before anybody was trying to give it any sort of commercial application. It's the thing that's, the thing that's funniest to me about whenever I see and I'll freely admit to not spending a whole lot of time on this because I just, it's a hard eye roll for me a lot of the time. But um, but uh, the thing that I find most fascinating about it is just that like, it literally hasn't progressed <laughs> in any way, shape or form in any meaningful way since the mid nineties. And when was the last time you saw a technology that people have been actively working on for 20 years that nonetheless appears to be incredibly stalled? I find that fascinating. I don't know how to explain it. Well, you, part of the part of what I'm seeing in metaverse is this idea that you can shop in 3D, which you can, of course, do in a bricks and mortar store. So it doesn't really seem like that much of an innovation, except for the the things that you're shopping for and picking don't look real. You know, yeah, it's just kind of yeah. a, a catalog experience. Uh, this is from the demos that I've seen so far. I'm sure you can do, I mean, obviously in Second Life, they did really creative things with uh, uh, sort of a visual experience. It wasn't completely 3D, but it was sim similar to 3D. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I'm sort of arguably a little more interested in augmented reality, right? Like that idea is pretty interesting to me and particularly in like, you know, work or industrial settings. Like that's one where I see like, okay, the value of, you know, having this information superimposed on the world, I can absolutely see it. But, you know, then I talk to people who are actually working in AR divisions of major multinational technology companies and they're like, yeah, it's a mess. We haven't gotten anywhere with it yet. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. I don't, I don't know, what, I don't know what to do. Like there's some, there's some sort of fundamental, I don't know what it is, but like there's some sort of fundamental disconnect right now when we look at the, like the technologies that are swirling in the hype cycle between the promises and what they can actually do. And I think we just covered two of them. Artificial intelligence is somewhat in this place, although actually there are some pretty amazing applications of it as well. And then of course, crypto, which, you know, is like so far out over it's like um it's like wily coyote off of the cliff you know what i mean in terms of hype and it's just like hanging out over the cliff face running in the air not yet aware that it's about to plummet off um I, but what is it about this moment like what is going on at this particular moment what is going on with the intersection of technology and culture and commerce uh and capitalism i guess that that has resulted in like this wild disconnect between what we say these technologies can do and what they can actually do it feels like that's been the case before, but then the technology's caught up or the technology's actually, sometimes I think uh, they didn't catch up exactly, but they like skated around and did something totally different. And that was cool too. But this time it just seems like, 
I don't know. Maybe it's the money thing, but it's just well, the, it's the, the era of the back. huckster and the grifter, you know? Mm. I mean, we had a game show host as president for a while. It's yeah. It, 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 we've created a kind of reality that where grift is so much more acceptable than it ever was before. And even defended, you know, as an yeah. okay thing to do and an okay I mean, way to run a government. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I, I, I sort of fear that if anybody actually tried to pull back, like actually tried to pull back the curtains on capitalism, they'd realize that these days we've gotten up to about 90% grift and 10% utility. And that's not a great, not a great trade-off. And maybe you're right. Maybe technology is just the place where it's most exposed because that's always been about like hype and the future. And so the grift is about the, <laughs> the future has gotten really grifty, at least along that axis. Oh, well, speaking of the future. Oh, yeah. I have this. Uh, talk about the Governance Futures Lab. Right. Well, so I one of the other things I do in my copious free time when I'm not hanging out on stellar podcasts like this one uh, is I have an affiliate with the Governance Futures Lab at the Institute for the Future, which has been around since the 50, it's been around for a long time, 52, 53 years, um, uh, which is kind of like the the uh, one of one of their premier sort of like uh, strategic foresight uh, institutes slash consultancies, strategic foresight being your listeners probably already know this, but strategic foresight just being a way of thinking about the future, multiple futures as a way of understanding which ones are more or less appealing. That's a real, real TLDR on that. Um, governance futures is really interesting because it's uh, the man who runs it. You mentioned earlier, Jake Dunnigan. It's just like such a, I'm just going to keep, these people are all my friends. You all are my friends. Yeah. Just keep calling you all brilliant. That's just what, that's just the deal. I have some brilliant friends and we're, we're, we're running the board on them here. Um, Jake's a brilliant guy and really is like, you know, thinking about like, what are like, what are ways that we can radically or fundamentally rethink governance? Governance just being like the way that we, the rules that we make for how we interact with each other, right? So not government, governments have governance, but governance structures are about, you know, what are the rules that we create for each other? And what are the systems that we use to create those rules? And what are the ideologies that we use to create those rules? What are the, um, what are the what are the goals? What are the outcomes? What what do we hope happens? Uh, what kind of spaces do we create? Can we create where we don't know what's going to happen, but we hope something interesting will happen, right? And you know, he points out that we live in a. I mean, I think you know we, we're here in the United States. We're experiencing how, uh, even though we really venerate our you know almost three hundred year old government system that is the U.S. Constitution, it's it's real creaky. It's really showing its age. <laughs> And unfortunately, wasn't designed with enough fail safes for us to move past that. It's part of the pain that we all live with every day in this country. And Jake is like, what are some other ways we can think about governance? Not just for governments, but for people. How do we think about how do we think about how we govern? What would we do? It's everything from like, how would we think about governing a new colony on the moon? Right. That's one way of thinking about it, too. How do we think about governance in our daily life? What's a What's a governance system we could use for a family? What's a government system we could use for a rock band, right? Like all of these different ways that we come up with spoken or unspoken or some combination of the two rules for how they work together. It's a super interesting place. IFTF is a super interesting place. Really pretty admirable work. That I they agree do. about that. Oh, yeah. Well, let's get to Wikimedia. Oh, yeah. My current and job. I think my, my first, yeah, my first question is kind of how did wikimedia llc come to be 
So the goal of it's pretty interesting, I think, right? The goal of it was to basically say, hey, you know, with the, so first of all, the mission of the foundation is, you know, the dissemination of knowledge, right? Like how can we distribute knowledge to as many people as possible in as many languages and in as many places as possible? And how can we make it as abundantly accessible as possible? That is the goal of the foundation, right? So one of the things to think about when you're thinking about it, as I often have to do from a sort of quote unquote commercial angle is, okay, how do we ensure that whatever we're doing, even when it involves commerce, even when it's about commercial transactions, how do we ensure that it's ultimately serving that mission, right? I mean, my shorthand for this is how do we always ensure that the, the uh, money serves the mission. It doesn't turn into a situation where the mission serves the money, right? Because that can happen, right. right? That's the thing about oh, yeah. capitalism. It can it can chew things up and spit them out real fast. Um, so, and that's why I really like to emphasize, like, yeah, we're an LLC, but honestly, the LLC is not the important part. The important part is the part where we're all still part of the Wikimedia Foundation. Um, like, I'm still a foundation employee. Uh, happen to wear a second hat as the person who is responsible for maintaining the LLC. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm a foundation employee and I'm directed towards the mission in the same way that whatever money that we make from the, the product that we sell, which is called Wikimedia Enterprise, um, which is generally how we refer to it. How can we how can we ensure that all like all the money from that goes back to the foundation? None of it goes anywhere else. It goes back to the foundation. Some of it's used to pay our salaries because we're foundation employees. Um, and I mention all of that just because like we, the team that came before me and then I think with me once I joined, we really tried to thoughtfully architect the structure to ensure that at the end of the day, it was going to be about serving the mission. And that to the extent that we could, we were putting in um, uh, real, real governors on the the money-making side of things to ensure that they, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't spiral out of control. So I want to we'll kind of start there. Um, that said, the, what Wikimedia Enterprise is, is it's basically, it came from the fact that folks who worked at the foundation really recognized that over the, you know, 20 years that Wikimedia and Wikipedia have been around with Wikipedia and its sister projects, um, a lot of commercial activity has taken place, right? So over the years, we've opened up all sorts of free APIs, all sorts of free ways to access all the information. And I mean, all the information. And then all the content that we create has different licenses on it. But generally speaking, those licenses are open content licenses, they're Creative Commons licenses or Creative Commons-like licenses that allow for honestly, like extremely flexible reuse of the data, far more than you would get in any commercial context, right? So, so there's a lot of commercial use of that data, right? They're all supposed to attribute it most of the time. We have a, a Creative Commons license that requires attribution. Some companies and organizations are better at that than others, but generally speaking, that's what they sign up for. But otherwise they can just sort of like use the data as they will. And that's pretty important to us actually. Um, so what's, what I think is interesting about that is, you know, it created this situation where folks were like, hey, there's some like pretty massive commercial use of our content, but they don't pay. They make a lot of money off of it, but they don't pay. Some of them maybe are donors either individually or as corporations or organizations, but they don't pay. Could we architect a system where we got them to pay, not because we were forcing them to pay, not because we said, okay, it's no longer free for you to use, which by the way, we couldn't do even if we wanted to because of the licenses. Um, we don't want to, just to be clear. Uh, but um, it's like the furthest thing from my mind. But could we 
could we structure it so that uh, we could build something that looked like more like a commercial service, right? Uh, we could give them contracts that they could sign. We could give them assurances that the site would stay up. We could give them customer support. We could build maybe new features and functionality that were specific to commercial reuse. And with that, could we convince them to pay us, right? Not, not because we're saying like, oh, you can't have it for free anymore, but could we architect a structure that allowed them to pay in if they chose to? And then hopefully make that appealing enough initially or over time, they start to pay in. Um, so we're a couple years into it. And we have some customers, we've only really announced one, but it's a big one. It was Google, we announced a couple months ago. Um, so we feel, I'm feeling good about it. Like, I feel like it's a, that's a good opening salvo in proving that the model can work. And we have a lot of cool features and functionality that we're building for commercial organizations that we think will entice more and more of them over time. And then it's great because ultimately all that money goes back to feed the Wikimedia Foundation and goes to the su supporting like the production and dissemination of knowledge, which is, you know, pretty good use for some of that money compared to some of the other things maybe these big tech companies spend it on. Yeah, reading about Wikimedia, I noticed you have independent mo Wikimedia movement affiliate organizations. Mm -hmm. Now explain uh, exactly how that operates. Okay, so the, the, the thing to understand about Wikimedia is that, you know, the cool thing about Wikipedia is, as an example, as one of the projects and the best known is that, you know, anybody can edit it, right? You can get in there and it doesn't matter if it's Russian Wikipedia or French Wikipedia or German Wikipedia or Tagalog or Wikipedia, whatever it might be, English Wikipedia. You can get in there, you can hit that edit button, you can make a change, right? Um, simple in concept. And then in practice, you know, especially once you've achieved the kind of scale that Wikipedia in particular has achieved, right? Like you need governance. Here's where we sort of pull it all together. And uh, it's been 20 years. So like there's some pretty elaborate governance structures. There are people that are deeply invested in it um, and there are different aspects and organizations. And one of them is this notion of like regional affiliates. Um, the, the actual model for this is somewhat more complicated than just affiliates, but, but fundamentally there are affiliate organizations. Uh, some are actually nonprofits in their own right and some are not. Um, and they are, they are specifically, they are, they exist in different countries. The biggest one is actually in Germany, Wikimedia Deutschland, but there's plenty of other ones, Wikimedia UK, Wikimedia Netherlands, Wikimedia India, there's quite a few. Um, and uh, Wikimedia Japan, like they're all over the place. Um, and these folks, you know, basically come up with different organizing structures on their own in a kind of a distributed manner to figure out like, what can they do? What, what are the goals? They have different goals, but like, what are the goals that they have? The goals are to, and some of them work to encourage production of content. Some of them work to encourage dissemination of knowledge. Like it's just, it's sort of as vast as the globe. I mean, that's what I love about working at this place is there's so, so much and so many different kinds of activities. And then there's the foundation, which I work for, which is centralized, like one centralized organization that is constantly trying to figure out what is the best way to support all of this activity and all of this work. What is, what is the best way to get resources to it? And I will say like, sometimes the foundation does a good job of that. And like any institution, sometimes there are places where we could be doing it better, but it's, that's kind of what it's about. It's just a recognition that this is a global phenomenon and kind of an constant ongoing process, distributed, widely distributed process to figure out the best way to support that phenomenon. You've got this huge army of Wikipedians uh, who are volunteers and who do valuable and, and sophisticated work and they've evolved 
you know, principles and practices over time for doing that work to try to ensure the accuracy of Wikipedia. And uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. There, how many thousands of those volunteers are there? Oh, you, yeah. I'm it's the hard to even to know. Ask. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. So many. And more people that more people that just do it on the, you know, on the irregular, you know, change a thing or here, thing or two there, here or there, as opposed to the folks who, the amazing folks who get in and sort of like, we'll do this, we'll manage these particularly like these sort of elaborate content structures. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I never really thought about this, but like the wiki, you know, I mentioned that like I, I start off thinking I'm interested in the thing and then I always end up being more interested in the thing that creates the thing, you know? And this has been true for my entire career. and. It's sort of, I think, part of how I got involved in government because government is, you know, when it's working really, really well, nobody notices or even thinks about it, right? It is genuinely infrastructural in that way. And um, and uh, it's funny because, you know, and then I worked in the part of government, I mentioned it's called GSA, the General Services Administration. It's like, if the government is the behind the scenes actor that makes so much of the world actually work, which whether people realize it or not, it is, then like GSA is like the behind the scenes actor behind the government, you know? It's like the support structure for the support structure. It's real back office. And I honestly, I kind of think of the Wikimedia Foundation, like, you know, the stars of what's happening in the, are the folks in the movement. Right, they're the people that are actually doing the creation and managing the creation and creating the bureaucratic structures that organize the creation of this knowledge. Right, and I think the foundation at the end of the day is kind of like you know we're here to sort of we're here to serve the movement. Right, we're here to figure out how to support it where it needs supporting and to pay for it where it needs paying for and to do this or that to kind of keep things going. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's like it's a it's a more of a behind the scenes process you know, 600 or so people that are trying to figure out what they can do to support this vast universe of, of other folks who are doing the real work. Yeah, the part that I love about reading uh, anything on Wikipedia is the behind the scenes editing that goes mm-hmm. on. And it's like watching a, a, a schoolyard fight going on, or not a fight, but an argument among people of this is the truth. No, that's the truth. Some of them are you know going on and on and on. It's very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I you know, and uh, I, I, I agree. I would encourage anybody who's never done it to check out a talk page, which you know you can click on from any Wikipedia page and sort of see what's going on behind it. Um, see if there've been any discussions about it. My particular favorite is I love watching people argue about like indie rock bands, just because I love indie rock bands and it's, you know, a place where people can get passionate and involved. And sometimes people debate what should be on a page and uh, that makes me happy. Yeah, the, uh, any entertainment related page has some just, some of them are just, you know, frightening you know people are really passionate about things like you know entertainers to the point of uh (laughs) sounding dangerous i mean well this is sort of why i mentioned like it's so impressive i think that like the bureaucratic structures i I use bureaucratic in a positive not a negative connotation just in case some some folks don't but that's my that's my take on bureaucracy it's a form of governance can be done well or done badly and in this case i'd say done done well um but like the bureaucratic structures that support that sort of thing, like like at the beginning of COVID, the most reliable information that you could find about what was going on with COVID was on Wikipedia, 
right? Because you had this army of people who were thoughtfully and carefully combing every single major source, including some, some of whom were extremely, some of whom were very passionate amateurs and some of whom were deeply knowledgeable professionals coming together, sort of put all of this information in and put it through a process that actually demanded a level of uh, ver verification and proof, right? that uh, was sort of assured that the content that was going on on Wikipedia around the time was like the best the best possible source for it. You know, talk to anybody who is searching the web at that time, which was what every person on the planet and <laughs> that had access. And, you know, ultimately all of them, you know, Wik Wikipedia was where they ended up. And to me, that's just like, that's amazing. I feel like it says something really cr critical about I don't know, a theme that I feel like has been bubbling up our entire conversation, which is sort of like, maybe this is every conversation I've ever had, which is like, you know, how, how do you use technology well, right? How do you use it? How do you put it towards its highest and best purposes? Because, you know, there's the, there's the old, there's the old uh, classic truism, technology is neither good nor, nor bad, not, neither is it neutral. And um, I, forget who, I forget who wrote that, his six rules of technology in the 80s. Um, but uh but it this, might have been this, Kevin like, Kelly. Uh, no, it was it was um, it was before Kevin. Okay. Re well, regardless, it's a uh, sort of like let's say a fundamental law of computing, which is that you know what what we do, what we choose to do with this matters, right? Like how we put human agency into something, what our intentions are, what our ethics are, what our values are, really, really matter. Who we care about, what we care about, what we're trying to support. You know, you can build. You, I mean, you can build amazing things, you can build terrible things. That's always been true. It's been true with everything. Computers just make it a little bit easier to do both at scale, right? So I guess like, I kind of keep coming back to this question of like, how do we, <laughs> how do we ensure we do, how do we, Melvin Kranzberg, thank you. There you go. Fine, Melvin Kranzberg, thanks Wikipedia. <laughs> way, to, way to bring it full circle there. Um, <laughs> he's a brilliant man. If you're not familiar with his work, he was a brilliant man and his, his six laws of computing are pretty fantastic. Um, but I just, I like, you know, I kind of, I always come back to this, like what, what can we do? How can we create governance structures that are more likely to get people to do good things? Because we've seen what bad things can happen. And I feel like the internet right now is in some ways very much just kind of a, is in a, so like, like so much of the world, a little bit of a dark place at the moment, thanks yeah. to, um, where capitalism has dragged it. And I, I love these moments when I get to talk to folks like you and I get to talk to folks like the folks at, at uh wikipedia and in the movement wikimedia and in the movement who are trying to do something else one question about the whole big volunteer force that manages wikipedia are they pretty much on their own do they have i mean they're not managed at all by wikimedia foundation right they mm -mm. they sort of self-manage yeah no that's correct i mean they you don't find that many places yeah that's no. that's unusual yeah, it's, you know, it's community in the truest, in the truest sense. I'm floored by the people that I meet that are part of that community. Like they fascinate me. I love them. And many companies actually bring in Wikipedians. They, they'll, they'll hire their own Wikipedian to sort of make sure that they're accurately represented on Wikipedia. I worked for yeah. Consumer Reports for a while, and they had there was a guy named Lane Ranz Raspberry that came to work for Consumer Reports, who was uh, really uh, uh, a very uh, what should I say insightful and intelligent Wikipedian who really understood how Wikipedia works and how to make sure that it works uh, 
to ensure accuracy, among other things. I mean, that's kind of the main thing there, right? You want all of that content in Wikipedia, and there's so much of it to be accurate. Yep. Yeah. Lane is still very much involved in the other other lane, I guess I should say. It's still very other much lane, involved yeah. in. I have yet to meet him. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, is uh, still very, I mean, very much part of the movement, still very much a pretty critical voice inside of it. There are people who make a living going out and changing things on Wikipedia. How do you inf enforce truth uh, when you have people like that uh, changing it to something else? Yeah, well, I mean, truth is not necessarily the goal, right? The goal is just to ensure that there's appropriate citations, right? So that's that's uh, one way that you can avoid having a conversation about truth and what is truth. Um, that's why so when you look at those pages, you'll see there's a real focus on things being appropriately cited. Um, but uh, tr truth is sort of left left to others, uh, which I think is actually a big strength of um, what is, it has proven to be a big strength, whether I think it is or not. I think it's pretty much proven out that it is. Um, you know, the movement frowns upon people getting paid to do, not to do work around Wikipedia or the other projects um, at all, but getting paid specifically to edit is generally frowned upon. Um, it's, you know, I mean, anything gets big enough, it develops its own ecosystem. And, you know, our universe is bigger than most. So it's got plenty of folks who build all sorts of cool things. Some of them get paid for it. Some of them don't. It's just, uh, it's just fascinating. And the foundation is sort of, again, here to support, support it, whatever direction it goes, the foundation's here to support it. Well, you know, I mentioned companies hiring Wikipedians, uh, my, in, in the one situation where I knew somebody who was in that role, um, they were not there to, um, they were not there to change things for the company. Mm -hmm. They were just there to manage the, um, the way the company was presented. But, um, I wonder if, if Wikipedians who hire themselves out to do that sort of thing, uh, and if they misuse their role, in order to do that sort of thing, they're kind of called out by other Wikipedians, right? They they keep an eye on each other. Yeah, I mean, this isn't an area where I have a lot of expertise, full disclosure, but I mean, I would say like it is a community. It operates like a community. People pay attention to each other and they hold each other to, you know, uh, standards and expectations as part of that. You know, and, and absolutely like any community, there's forms of self-governance or communities, I should say, at the end of the day, it's really not one community, it's many communities, right? There's different different rules and norms that govern the different projects. Uh, there's even different rules and norms that govern the different Wikipedias, you know? So how things get decided on Russian Wikipedia is a little bit different from how things get decided on Dutch Wikipedia. No, I um, so, you know, like, so uh, many different communities and different communities have different ways of structuring sort of policing mechanisms and, um, you know, and then there are some things that we, they work with the foundation. So the foundation has put together uh, through a very long and uh, somewhat arduous process has put together uh, something called the universal code of conduct, which is making its way towards ratification, um, trying to enforce some baseline rules and mechanisms for how people are expected to behave. Uh, so, you know, it's not, not like the foundation's uninvolved, but even then it sort of tends to be something ideally that bubbles up from activity 
in the movement, not something that's imposed on the movement, though. S certainly there are folks in the movement who would disagree with the statement I just made. Because honestly, it's big enough that there's always someone to disagree with you. That's part of its charm. I think we're pretty close to the end of our hour. Uh, do you have anything else to add, uh, especially about kind of what you're hoping to do in the near future in your role at Wikimedia? Um, that's a good question. I am, um, you know, I'm, uh, I find this whole process of trying to figure out how to build a commercial service for commercial companies, um, that, that doesn't violate, <laughs> that doesn't violate, um, uh, either the, the, the spirit or the letter of the law when it comes to the foundation and its mission to be just a really interesting challenge and a tightrope to walk at times. But I feel, I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of it so far. Um, but I just, I find it very, I don't know. I find it very animating. I'm animated by the concept of ultimately of fairness that sort of sits behind it. This idea that like, you know, if you're making, if you're making some money off of the content that you should, that like, if we could build a mechanism to feed some of the money that you're making back into the movement that, you know, sort of initially it's almost a virtuous circle right like i mean you you know big tech company pays money to get better access and to the service uh to the service so that they can get the content that money goes back to create more content and disseminate it thank you lane for joining us this has been a great conversation and we'd love to have you back sometime to talk yeah about. absolutely maybe we can come on with one of those many cool folks that we just discussed Turn Ooh, that's a great table. idea absolutely yeah let's do that love it. Okay, well, thanks so much. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.